Good evening again. Hebrews chapter 2 will begin as we do on Sunday evenings with an opportunity for some interaction. If you have any questions about what we shared this morning as we studied together, Jesus is exactly what we need. Do you have questions that might have come from our study this morning? Any questions then? Maybe something that you said, well, I'd like to know a little more about this, or this really wasn't clear to me. Something came about from our discussion today. It's okay to ask. Remember, the first person kind of gets everybody else, breaks the ice, or other people will talk. All right, okay. <laughs> Pretty well covered it. That's good. Good. That that's a difficult term. And and unfortunately in the age that we live in, if something takes more than a sound bite to explain it, we almost don't want to bother. And propitiation is, a, is a, such an important term, and it is one of the leading descriptors of Christ and His work. In fact, He doesn't just make propitiation, as we read in Hebrews, but First John tells us He is the propitiation. He doesn't just give it. He doesn't just do it. He is the propitiation. And that culture that they lived in was so richly steeped in the temple worship traditions that these things were so much more easily envisioned by them that they were a part of their regular life. And for us to speak of them, we just have to kind of go into extra detail to try to, to cover it. So it's good. Thank God. Yes. Yes. And, and I think the substitute is part of the plan. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because this word um, that we have in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 for propitiation, is the word that is used when the Pharisee and the publican go up to pray in the book of Luke. And the Pharisee steps up and he prays and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, like this person and this person. I tithe, I fast. He goes through that list. And the the tax collector, unwilling to raise his eyes even to heaven, says that he smites his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The word be merciful there is be propitiated. It is be mercy seated. So this poor, 
frail, tax-collecting sinner better understood the theology of propitiation than the Pharisee did. So he asks for Jesus, uh, or for God to propitiate himself toward that sinner. So it's a, it's a great phrase. If you want to go back and read that in Luke, it's, it's just really wonderful how that interchange goes, goes about. Other questions or observations from what we shared this morning? I, I love to hear your, how you're processing these things that we talk about, and I'd like to have the chance to interact with you. All right, well, let's move ahead a little bit into some things I would like to share with you tonight. I want to start in the book of Luke, keeping your marker there in Hebrews 2, to take you to a statement that Jesus made in Luke chapter 14. And this passage tells us a little bit about how we should view our need for salvation. If you come down to verse 31 of chapter 14 in the book of Luke, we read together here, For what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first down and take counsel, whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men, to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and requests the terms for peace. This is a a great statement. Here's a king who's trying to figure out, can I take this other guy on? No, I really can't. If I take him on, I'm going to get whipped. So I need to send an embassy. I need to send a delegation to ask that guy... What deal can we make for us to be at peace? Now, Jesus is hinting that there is a place where you and I have to sit down and say, can I take God on? Then we have to, like this king, go, "Mm, I guess not. So now I need to ask God, what are your terms of peace? I need to be astute enough in the planning of my meeting him to find out from him what are your terms of peace. Now, it's interesting. When Jesus gave us this in Luke chapter 14, he was provoking us to think about what what, what is the situation in which God would not attack us, destroy us? What is the situation in which God would be at peace with us? The letter to the Hebrews, if you'll go back there, is the letter that communicates how we can be at peace with God. Now, I want to mention the ministry of the high priest. So let's take a moment 
If you'll get a pen out or a pencil, and I want you to take a few notes real quick for you to look at in the coming weeks. I think these things will be helpful for you as we approach the topic in the coming weeks of the high priest, Jesus as our high priest. Now, this coming week, we will only make passing reference to it because we'll be dealing with a little bit different issue. Then we'll pick it back up and pretty much stay on that theme all the way through until about Christmas time. So, with pencil in hand, I want to walk through some texts with you and just get you to make a quick list for your personal study, and then I want to highlight a few of these. In the book of Hebrews, the first mention of the high priest is the text we use today. It introduces it, Hebrews 2.17. The next time it is mentioned is just a few verses away. Look in chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. The next time it's mentioned is chapter 4, verse 14, if you'll join me there. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. If you'll notice there, the idea of high priest and confession are together. Verse 15, we hear about him again. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. In chapter 5, we begin a description of earthly high priests. For every high priest taken from among men, verse 1, is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself is also beset with weaknesses. We pick up again in verse 5. So Christ also did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Just as he says also in another passage, Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. As soon as you drop the Melchizedek word, people start going, Who's that? Well, we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. We find it again in verse 10. Jesus being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. In chapter 6, verse 20, we find out that Jesus is the high priest that is our forerunner into the Holy of Holies. In chapter 7, we begin in verse 1 of hearing about the priest Melchizedek. In verse 26, it's driven home that we have a holy and innocent and undefiled high priest. In chapter 8, verse 1, we have a high priest who is sitting at the right hand of God in heaven. Verse 3 tells us that high priests offer both gifts and sacrifices having something to offer. 
That's building up uh, something he's going to say later. Chapter 9, verse 7. We hear about the high priest entering into the Holy of Holies once a year with blood. In verse 11 of chapter 9, we hear of Christ, the high priest of the good things to come. And on down into verse 25 of chapter 9, we hear that this high priest offers himself. The book of Hebrews closes out its discussion of high priest there, but it reflects one more time in chapter 13, verse 11, about the bodies of the animals whose blood is brought into the holy place are burned outside the camp. A reflection of Jesus' being led outside of the city to Golgotha for his crucifixion. Having said that, sort of walking you through those verses and hoping that this week you'll just take some time and read through them, I want to mention three things about the ministry of the high priest that are very important for us. When everything broke down in the Garden of Eden, one issue became paramount for all of humanity. One issue. The issue of access to God. If you will remember that prior to sin entering, you had Adam and Eve walking openly in the presence of God. You had Adam and Eve fellowshipping with the presence of God. Speaking with the presence of God. Hearing the presence of God. And suddenly, after they sin, you see them fleeing from the presence of God. The breakdown at that point was a breakdown on both sides. We became at enmity with God wanting to run our own show and do it separated from Him. And He became at enmity with us because of His justice and His wrath and just punishment for sin, not able to allow us into His presence in that sinful state. So the access to God is broken in Genesis 3. The entire rest of the Bible is the story of the restoration of access to God and how God is going to bring that access back. The Old Testament is a collection of God's illustrations of how that is going to be restored. The New Testament calls those illustrations shadows of a reality, but not the substance themselves. So everything in the Old Testament and all of the ritual were statements of externals that were reflecting 
on the condition that was internal. There were washings, purifications. There were rituals of clothing and foods you could eat and all of these things that were all stating externally a state that was internal. And a consequence that was eternal. And so through the course from Adam and Eve and the first death, the very first death that happens in the Bible is when Adam and Eve sin and something is killed, skinned, and the skins are placed over Adam and Eve as a covering for the things they wanted to hide from God and from each other. And the story of access to God is the story woven through the Old Testament, principally displayed in the temple ceremony where God's presence dwelt inside the inner chamber of the Holy of Holies, above the cherubim, over the Ark of the Covenant that contained the law, and access was denied. To everyone except the chief priest once a year. In order to drive home the seriousness of that, right after the high priestly um, descriptions are given in the book of Leviticus, two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, said, Hey guys, let's check out this access thing. And they, on their own initiative, approached God. And the Bible says that the fire came out from the presence of God and engulfed them and consumed them. And that is no small matter because the book of Hebrews is going to tell us in just a few chapters... Our God is a consuming fire. So if you try to approach Him without the right access code. How many of you saw the, uh, the movie? I'm trying to think of the name of it. It had Vin Diesel as a babysitter. The Pacifier. Did you all see The Pacifier? That's a funny movie. In the very end, there's this access code that becomes a part of the movie that allows him to get into something. And if you don't know the access code, all these things happen to you. If you try to get into the presence of God without the access code, our God is a consuming fire. And so when we talk about the ministry of the high priest, the ministry of the high priest is the ministry of access first and foremost. He is the only one who has access to God. So when Jesus comes to fulfill that, he tells us that in the book of John, where he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father access except through me. 
So the primary ministry of the high priest is the ministry of access. That is in the book of Hebrews explained very well, and you can go back later, in the whole of chapter 9. So you can make a note, say, I want to kind of look back at access. Then you can also flip over and read through, particularly in the book of Leviticus, um, maybe around chapter 9 would be good of Leviticus. Hebrews 9 and Leviticus 9. Now, let me go secondly. The ministry of the high priest is not only access to gain access to God. The ministry of the high priest is a ministry of representation. The high priest stands in a very important place. He stands as God's representative to man. Therefore, this incredibly holy attire, this washing, this cleansing, the rituals that get him ready for his service when he does the Day of Atonement is very meticulous because he is representing holiness and glory and grandeur. And so he is a representative of God to man. That's his position. He stands between God and man. So it's representation. But then as he goes into the Holy of Holies, he's the representative of man to God. So the Old Testament pictures that. And then Christ is the God-man. He is 100% deity. He is God. He is fully and truly and completely man also. So he is the only fitting representative. Bringing God to us. What does John tell us, we beheld His glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What does Hebrews tell us? He is the radiance of His glory. The book of Colossians drives it home, telling us He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Over and over we get that He is the representative of God, showing us who God is, what He is like, But we also hear that as the perfect Adam, the second Adam, the Adam that did not sin, he is our representative to God. So when Jesus stands between us and him, when Jesus hangs on the cross between us and the Father, he is the perfect representative of both. He is showing us in his love the redemptive nature of God. He's showing us in the wrath poured out upon Him the serious consequences of our sin. And so the high priest is a ministry of access bringing man to God. But he's a minister of representation bringing God to man and representing man to God. Finally, third, It is a ministry of propitiation. The ministry of propitiation is the highest 
ministry of the high priest. During the course of a high priest's year, he will serve several different basic duties of priesthood. But the thing that will differentiate him from all other priests is that on the Day of Atonement, he is the selected one, the anointed one, the appointed one, who actually does something no one else can do. He will go behind the veil where God, in his glorious presence, made himself visible in what was called the Shekinah glory, this incredible just way that God just said, I'm glorious. And the high priest was the only one who ever went in and saw that, who experienced that. But he only did so as an act of propitiation. Now, propitiation was the driving home of two truths. One, we have sinned. And two, sin has consequences. The wages of sin is death. And so the ministry of the high priest was to come in and to bring the blood representing death into the presence of the Almighty. And what would happen is a very unusual thing. The priest would do two things in this Day of Atonement. The blood would go two ways. First off, they would lay representative hands, the elders of Israel as a nation, would lay representative hands on the head of the offering. And in a sense, it was a picture of a transference. We are placing the guilt of our sins onto this animal. Then the priest would take that animal and he would slay that animal. Then he would gather the blood and the blood would go two places. Now, this is what's so awesome. The blood would be brought into the inner court, into the Holy of Holies. And it would be poured upon that seat we spoke of this morning called the Helasteron, the mercy seat. The blood would be poured there. That's the word we get propitiation from. The blood would literally be poured. You have this glorious gold ark. You have the glory of God shining above it. You have these cherubim that are framed out that are so glorious. You have all this going on. And then you have this icky blood just poured over this and running down and dripping off of the Ark of the Covenant. That moment was called the mercy seating, the propitiation, where death had fallen upon a victim in place of the people who had put their hands on the animal head, identifying with the animal, confessing and transferring, the animal dies as their substitute, and then it is poured onto that. And the Lord accepts that as a picture of what is to come. And He forgives them. And then 
the priest would go back out to the people and they'd all be gathered around and he would take that blood that was left over and he would dip a thing called hyssop into it. And then he would begin to shake the blood onto the people and it would spatter the people who were gathered. And he would say, you are now covered by the blood of the sacrifice. So the same blood that was offered in there covering the law and our guilt was spattered upon those out there covering them and forgiving them of their sin. And all of this was a picture that the blood that is offered in the presence of God that satisfies His requirement because the wages of sin is death was also sprinkled on the people because that was representative that the blood had touched them and forgiven them. So the way of access to God, they now were right with God. They were forgiven. And then they would live on until another year when they would go back through the ceremony again. Now, how were they forgiven? You need to ask that question and then close. In the Old Testament, they did this year after year. People did this week after week personally. They did this corporately once a year. I was teaching the gospel among the Satchila in 2005. Not yet quite understanding how profound of thinkers all of them are. So I'm going through the blood of Jesus and how Jesus actually is the fulfillment of all these things that are pictured in the Old Testament. How it's Jesus' blood that is actually... Did you know that Jesus went into heaven to the real temple in heaven and gave His own blood to God the Father? That We're going to actually read that in the book of Hebrews. This beautiful picture... And so I'm explaining how Jesus does all this. And Manuel, one of the Satchelists, says, Okay, we get it. Since Jesus died, we can be forgiven of our sins through all this. How did the people in the Old Testament get saved if that animal couldn't save them? If he was only a symbol and a promise, how could the people in the Old Testament get saved? How could they be forgiven? Which, by the way, is a great question. And so I'm standing there going, Man, I was not anticipating that question. And it was like the Lord spoke to me, and I reached into my wallet I had with me, and I pulled out a credit card. And the Satchila know what a credit card is because they do business in town with tourists. And so tourists have credit cards, so they know what a credit card is. And so I told him, I said, let's imagine I get my credit card out, okay? And, and I hand my credit card to Sean, and I say, hey, Sean, let's eat some pizza tonight after church. Why don't you run on over and uh, go to Papa John's and get us about 20 pizzas? And let's eat pizza right after church. And I hand Sean my credit card, and Sean goes, okay? Now, let me ask you a couple questions. Sean gets there, he slides the card, he signs my name. Here's the deal. Does Sean pay for it? Yes or no? No, he does not. Does Sean receive the benefits of it? He gets pizza, right? Now, let me ask you, at that very moment, do I pay for it? No. When do I pay for it? When I get the bill, listen up. Jesus got the bill for the Old Testament sinners at the cross. 
They received the benefits because they offered their offering by faith in hope of the Messiah to come. And so all of those sins and sinners were put on a bill that Jesus got and paid at the cross. That's how they got saved. They got to enjoy the benefits. They ate the pizza, but they didn't get a bill. So when we look at the ministry of the Old Testament high priest, and we know that the blood of bulls and goats can never forgive sin, we say to ourselves, then how could they get saved if that could not work? It's because every time a lamb was slain in faith, they were running Jesus' credit card. And Jesus was forgiving them. God the Father was redeeming them. He was covering their sin with a picture of the one who would ultimately cover their sin. That is Jesus. Now here's what's important. The only way that we could receive the benefit today is the same way they could receive the benefit then. And that is through faith. You're not getting saved because you're coming to church. In fact, if you're coming to church thinking that God is going to accept you because you come to church, I want to tell you that your attendance is offending Him tonight. It offends Him for you to think that you can do anything to save yourself. The only salvation is that Jesus Christ, our high priest, gave us access as our representative because He was our propitiation. It was His life poured out, His blood shed, His character perfect, qualifying Him to save us from our sins. And do you know how I know that the bill was paid? Well, how do you know when somebody writes you a check whether or not the check is good? How do you know? When the check clears on Resurrection Sunday, the check cleared. And God the Father said, sufficient payment was there. Jesus was raised from the dead and so you and I have redemption through faith in who Jesus is. He is God in human flesh. What He has done, He is the Savior who propitiates God Himself on our behalf. And He is worthy to be enduringly hoped in because of where He is taking us. Let's bow together.